I'm talking to you from Tim Hortons, which is like Greg's for Canadians. Um, maybe it's better than Greg's in some ways, but not as good as Greg's in other ways. Uh, we can discuss that if you like. Um, here's the thing. Back in 2002, when I got my PS2, the first DVD I ever bought uh, to play on it was the John Woo classic Mission Impossible 2. And I thought I'd mention that because amusingly, I've just decided to start buying 4K Blu-rays, which I've never had before. I've never bought a 4K Blu-ray. I thought it'd be fun to build up a library of, uh, you know, cool films. And the first uh, 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 4K Blu-ray box set that I bought was Mission Impossible, uh, the collection of like the six films released so far. So in a way... It's, I've, I've come back round again. MI2, which is not a great movie by any stretch, is uh, was the first DVD I ever bought, and now it's the first 4K Blu-ray I have owned, or one of them. Not really related to games, but, you know, it did happen. Oh, that's nice. That's a nice little, a nice little full circle moment. Do you know, I haven't actually started, like, a good... DVD, HD, Blu-ray. I still sometimes call them DVDs. Still feels right to me in my head. Um, I haven't really started like a sort of physical. I've got like a f- I have. I suppose I have started right. You know, I've got the makings of a fairly decent collection. Some of them ultra 4K, whatever. Some of them not. Some of them just normal old Blu-rays. Some of them just DVDs. Um, it's kind of a weird one because, uh, like now we. It's so easy to dial stuff up and get stuff on the uh, various apps that that haunt the TV. That I, I I never really think about that stuff anymore. But it is still nice to have a little collection of something. I suppose the one thing I have sort of the physical collections of more is games because, well, often because of necessity. Actually, sort of. Sort of it, there's more preservation problems in games than there is with movies, I think. Though there is still a problem with movies, but sort of less so. But I like that. <laughs> I never, I never go for those. Um, those. It always annoys me. Like I sort of get an obsessive thing when it comes to those box sets of things because it, it bugs me when it's like. Like it happens with Bond as well, and I'm just like, but they're just going to make more, and then it's going to really annoy me that I've got this box set that's incomplete, and then I'll have a box set and a load of DVDs left over when they make new ones. <laughs> I don't know exactly what you mean. I had the, it was called either the definitive or the ultimate James Bond collection, and it only went up to Skyfall, but it did have an empty slot for Spectre. But of course, now that's uh, that uh, that's useless too. So, um, do you know what I'm an idiot? Because the the reason I mentioned this, of course, was my first uh, DVD was on a PlayStation Two, and the reason for getting these 4K Blu-rays, of course, is now I've got a next generation console. So that's you know that's that's the game console connection there. Um, I'm looking forward to building up that little library, and yeah, like you, I. I do like physical games. There are some. I'm not, uh, you know, a collector by any means, and I wouldn't ever buy anything just to hold it for value or, you know, to resell or something like that. But I do, you know, I think I've got every Zelda game 
physical. And there are some little oddities and, and curios, particularly on the Nintendo consoles that I like, particularly on handhelds, because I think cartridges are, are kind of, in a world their own, they, they're kind of, you know, they don't get patched by and large, although some 3DS games do. They don't get um, updates. So they are what they are. Uh, games on disc, I think, you know, are almost redundant at this point, uh, given the updates and so on. But I've got things like, I don't know, like a Rhythm he- Heaven, like I'm quite pleased to have some WarioWare games, I'm quite pleased to have physical. Um, and I like all the you know, Nintendo cover art for first party stuff is always good too. So I, yeah, I don't collect, but I do um, have a few little treasures that I hope to hang on to. I'd like to add actually now in the time since I sent that first message, the wife and I have watched Mission Impossible 1 and Mission Impossible 2. One, I think, still holds up as a great espionage thriller it's still solid fun um two the the black sheep of the uh, mission impossible family for sure but i quite liked it i was really expecting to find it quite tiresome and quite aggravating and i think until the last like 25 minutes it kind of holds up it's pretty good and it, it falls apart with an extended sequence of motorbike motorcycle jousting and a really quite thin performance from Do Gray Scott, but it's very stylish. You have to say that, and it's 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 got some chops, that's for sure. Certainly not as bad as I thought. And then, of course, what did this lead me to think back to? Old video games, and of course, which one did it lead me to think of? Uh, Mission Impossible on Nintendo sixty four, which, if I recall correctly, was. A long time coming and a long time promoted and hyped and conceptually a great game, a great idea for a game. Um, And I never got it because I think N64 magazine uh, gave it a a lukewarm review or if it wasn't a lukewarm score, uh, I was old and wise enough to read between the lines and realise that it wasn't quite what we hoped. certainly wasn't a companion piece to Goldeneye. So it's a shame that a Mission Impossible game, I think there's there's plenty of opportunity in that. And I bet you've played that N64 game. And if you have, <laughs> I'm sure you'll be able to tell me all about it. <laughs> I have I have indeed uh, played Mission Impossible. Um, and it's, it, it's, a, it's kind of a funny one because I think it was compared to GoldenEye. But the the better comparison really would be something like uh, Operation Winback or uh, Siphon Filter. Um, it was perfectly all right. It wasn't a brilliant uh, like licensed game. It was it was fine. It's one of those ones where if it popped up on some sort of pre- uh, subscription service or something, you'd you'd have a punt for ten minutes. But unlike something like Winback, maybe you wouldn't. There's not not much there to to stick with it. One of the cool things about it was that it was pretty faithful to the story of the of the first movie. Um, they had the bit where they they go to Waterloo Station when they meet Max, <laughs> and I remember being quite impressed with that. Um, one of the one of the other things about it was weirdly, uh, I think it came out in like was it ninety eight or ninety nine. It was like a couple of years after the movie, and. Um, but I actually played Mission Impossible on the PlayStation. And it was one of those weird games where it, it became a, like a, a bit... I remember it was a bit of a battleground. Because on the PlayStation version, 
it had stuff like uh, like full voice acting for each character, or just voice acting of any kind for each character, like FMV cutscenes, all the lighting and music and stuff was better, and it was a real, like, it was one of the first games I remember, I think maybe Resident Evil 2 being the other one, where you really started to understand that jump from the cartridge to like why CDs would be would be the big thing, you know. There's nothing like a little bit of console wars one upmanship to make me feel uh, nostalgic, especially especially for those times. I am um, being the age I am, I of course remember the original wars in the UK at least. The the battle between Commodore 64 and the ZX Spectrum with its Casper the Ghost graphics and long loading times and my Commodore 64 owning friends were very proud of their like, super powerful sound chip capabilities and chunky blocky color color graphics in retrospect they both looked pretty hokey and in retrospect Commodore 64 was probably the better machine but as someone who owned a Spectrum a 48k Spectrum and a 128k Spectrum plus two um, I was uh, very much on Team Sinclair and uh, would try and um, excuse all sorts of terrible graphics. Oh, it really does make me nostalgic, like terms like attribute clash. It was the uh, it was the the sixty four K sixty of its day it was like color clash and stuff like that. Crikey, I'm old. And then also, I guess in the nineties, I wasn't so embroiled in the in the sixteen bit console wars. The Genesis, Mega Drive, SNES uh, battle didn't really like cross my path, and I feel like those systems are pretty much on on a level. But it was definitely a, a difference between the N sixty four and PlayStation. Um, pros and cons for each system, I think, um, and the best games on each system play to the strengths of those systems and show why both paths were were worthy. But yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was very uh, easy for PlayStation owners to to like win the the card around uh, having those FMV cutscenes and and voice acting and and music, real music and so on and so forth. Anyway, back to Mission Impossible. I would love a Mission Impossible game franchise. I think we both like GoldenEye. Uh, We both like Hitman. And, you know, they're games where, you know, in GoldenEye's case, it's an FPS, but it's more than that because of the gadgets and the espionage and and the same with, with Hitman. I'd love love someone to do a Mission Impossible uh, game because I think there's a real balance of of action and methodical inventiveness that you could uh, bring to that to that series. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And it might be one of those things where... where <laughs> uh, like, a li- you get it with Aliens a little bit where they want to do an Aliens game. And there's been, like, a load of Aliens games. But one of the problems they have is that video games on their own have already kind of eaten Aliens' lunch, you know? It's like, well, we've already had Super Metroid, you know? We've already had Halo, which the first Halo took so much from Aliens. And it's like, by the time they actually get, like, a licensed game out, it's like, well, now you've got to compete with 
the ones that have kind of already done Alien in all but name. I sort of think this sort of similarly about this upcoming Indiana Jones game. As much as I, I really like Machine Games' Wolfenstein games, I think they're quite fun. <laughs> sort of like dumb fun, you know. But like, it's going to be funny because it's like, well, as much as Indiana Jones inspired everything else, it's like, you're going to come out and you're going to have to compete with Tomb Raider and Uncharted that have both sort of already eating your lunch a little bit <laughs> sort of like you'd have to lean hard into having the proper license and i think it'd kind of be the same at mission impossible because it'd be like well sort of already done the hitman especially the recent hitman trilogy and also just like all the uncharted games which borrow so much from mission impossible that sort of caper atmosphere pulling off crimes and stuff um you know, and sort of heists. That was that's very much the thing, especially with Uncharted Two, which I'm actually playing this afternoon. <laughs> you know, you sort of do the heist in the Istanbul Museum, and I was. That's funny you say because I was thinking earlier today, like, oh man, this is so Mission Impossible, and it's funny. But if they ever did get the license to do a proper Mission Impossible game, they'd have to like, well, they'd have their work cut out for them. But they would have that theme tune, which would help greatly. I hope you can hear me uh, clearly. I am on the road. We are going to see an apartment today. We are apartment hunting on this bright and breezy Toronto morning. But it's quite noisy out here on the, the Queensway. Um, you're right about that music. There's just uh, Any game would just need to like pump that in every like 10 minutes and it could paper over all manner of cracks. Uh, great piece of music. Really, really good. Um, it's interesting that you mention Alien there because that the Alien video games are very hit and miss and some notable failures where they've really like, attempted to capture the, the magic of the movies and failed but a, a few that have really nailed it I think I was a fan of Alien Resurrection on uh, PlayStation 1 I thought that was a very spooky tense um, and, and creepy experience that was actually probably better than the, the film on, on which it took its name. It wasn't really based on that film, I guess. And then, of course, Alien Isolation, I, know, I think that's definitely a game you like, was um, super successful in capturing the, the, the magic of the, the lower-key Alien films, I thought, and a, a true love letter to the first film and uh, an example of doing it right and doing it right by not trying to go large, really, not trying to be the action blockbuster but trying to strip it back and become the survival a survival horror really and uh, it's a super effective game one um, I must confess I never finished because I think it ran its course it was just a bit too long for uh, for for what it was trying to do it would have been a great like eight or nine hour game and I'm pretty sure it ran to plus 20 Um, so yeah and there must be other examples anyway Let's see, I shall report back on how our apartment hunting goes. You looking forward to seeing a nice apartment?
I really hope it is a nice one. Because we want to set up a, a nice place to put up a, a monitor so I can play video games in two rooms, yeah? <laughs> yes, especially Zelda. Ah, now let's talk about Zelda. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, there are there are examples for sure. I suppose I, I sort of meant, yeah, it's more aliens that, that, that where they can't seem to get it right. Alien, actually. And it wasn't really until Isolation that they properly nailed that. I think it's just a question of getting the right genre, really. You know, you look at Alien and you think, oh, of course, yeah, has to be a, has to survive a horror. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's um. It's it's that odd, uh, that sort of slight, slightly difficult position they're in, I think, with, uh, I mean, because there was that awful aliens, colonial marines. <laughs> but, you know, uh, the first truly great alien game, I think, was Metroid. That would be, that would be, that would be my weird sort of take. Um, but that's, we're, we're, we're back into the arena of our licensed game. Here's a fascinating thing, uh, the, the, the licensed game phenomenon let me know how your uh your flat hunting goes as well sounds quite nice i need to go for a walk i've been a big lazy shit these last few days writing about things here and there um it is gray and blustery in london which suits me just fine because it's nice walking weather one thing i think i'd say about games based on aliens and it is a an important distinction is in Aliens, the movie, it's fun to see everyone get picked off by aliens. It's fun to see people lose, right? And in games, you kind of you kind of have to win. So it just it turns the aliens themselves into just cannon fodder, which kind of goes against their design. And it just also then becomes difficult to distinguish a game like that from a billion other sci-fi shooters, really. So... I don't think the IP, the aliens, alien with a dollar sign IP, is maybe that well-suited. Anyway, I actually think that franchise as a whole has been done to death. Like, it's, it's, uh, there's some good movies in there, but it's, um, I don't know. It's been uh, wrung out, hasn't it? (laughs) Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, It has been done to death. And I think that's a really good point. It is fun. it's fun to watch the Marines get chomped on. And I would say, you know, go and play the first Halo. You know, that is a terrific Aliens game. The moment about halfway through when you discover the Flood, you know, you've been fighting the Covenant all this time and all of a sudden you happen upon that video that you recover from that Marine's helmet camera uh, and you, you sort of uncover the horror and actually who the real villain is in Halo and you watch all the guys get picked off. You sort of think, and that's sort of what I mean in a way. It's like there's been some really good Aliens games. Um, Metroid Prime 2 Echoes. Uh, fucking amazing intro to that game. Real dark. Um, obviously just cribbing from Aliens loads. But And yet you are Samus and you know she's going to win and you know she's going to survive. It's a, very much the sort of Ripley mould in Aliens. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, it is a funny one, that. that. That's sort of what I mean in a way. It's like, yeah, how can you really, even if you got the licence, how can you really improve on that? The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, Cassette Beasts, which I know you, you sort of had your eye on. Um, and and something that you said to me the other day, which I thought was quite interesting, is that it's re- it's weirdly 
uncommon that uh, you get the straight Pokemon copycat. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are loads and loads of sort of homebrew games out there, you know, people in RPG Maker and all sorts of stuff who can have a go. But, you know, when it comes to the sort of monster collecting, monster battling, um, you know, things like Monster Hunter, totally different bag, you know. Um, there's all those sort of Digimon games. But, but again, I've, I'm not, having not played them, I understand they're really different. But one of the cool things I thought about Cassette Beasts was that it it was a copycat, but it was kind of, it was about that in a funny old way. You know, it was actually sort of like about being a copycat of Pokemon and sort of poking into some weird, gloomy corners of that franchise that are kind of unexplored. It was sort of Pokemon for a slightly older audience. Um, I thought it was really interesting. And in terms of Cassette Beasts, I'm really keen to play it uh... For a couple of reasons. One, I am a Pokemon fan. Um, although late in the day, I played Gold and Silver when I was younger, etc. But kind of about 10, 15 years ago is when I really started to get in and work my way through lots of the games. Um, and still like it to this day, although I'm slightly cooler on the more on the newer kind of 3D Pokemon games. They're just a little too elaborate for my taste, given what the game the core game mechanics are but nonetheless i'm a fan and cassette beasts looks like it really does like balance uh bringing something new to the genre but also it's got that kind of top down two and a half d visual style that i think is just so endearing and so charming and so right for a game like this i think um the reason why you don't see many copycats is that it's just it must be very difficult uh starting with having to create a roster of monsters the pokemon series itself has struggled at times to make <laughs> to make monsters that are in any way kind of coherent or sensible and you look back at the early at the early pokemon and they're such timeless classics and i don't think they've got better recently but there was a period there where they were quite ridiculous and i think if you're if you're going to make a game in that genre you really have to nail the look and the style of the, uh, of the of the critters and from what i've seen cassette beasts really does that so that that's that's one thing i think uh digimon for example that the monsters or the creatures in that are look atrocious um and then the other thing is that it's such pokemon the pokemon series is such a, a tried and tested formula that even though they do break away from it it's its core remains um kind of consistent, as does its need to appeal to a broad audience. Where I think something like Cassette Beast, from what I understand, again, it's not necessarily trying to be kid-friendly. I'm sure kids can play it, but there's there's more to it than that. Some more some more meat around its sort of narrative, um, and, you know, there might be a message in there, shall we say. So I'm, I'm just keen to see how it all comes together, because it is uh, an appealing prospect. I should add, I know how it comes together because I read your review uh, and very good it was too and, and, and has only made me want to play it even more. So I hope that the performance issues on the Switch version get um, patched up. I understand that's in progress and hopefully that will that will be a good summer holiday play at some point. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure I'm sure they will get patched up on the Switch actually. Um, it it was particularly rough when I was playing it 
to review uh, for Thumbsticks.com. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I read a thing that would sort of say that they were working on it, uh, which is a. It's a <laughs> Although one of the things I said was it weirdly sort almost suits that game, the because it almost feels like you're playing some old corrupted cartridge, you know, some sort of alternative Pokemon, you know, pirated Pokemon game with all these weird monsters in it. It's kind of kind of wonderful in a way. Um, but you make a that's a really good point about the art, um, art style, but also graphical style uh, for me. And and one of the things that's made Pokemon a little bit less fun for me in recent years. Um, it's a, it's a really good uh, point where it's it's about what are the mechanics that you've got, and how complex are those mechanics. And how does that marry up with the graphics that you're presenting? It almost feels like those two things shouldn't necessarily have anything to do with each other. You think, oh, it's a somewhat more simple game, um, so that suits a sort of pixelated art style. Something something about that makes an inherent kind of sense. When when you put Pokemon into, like, big, full, like, luscious 3D, it's almost like you expect more stuff out of it. You think, okay, well, it's got its big boy trousers on now, so it's got to do this, this, that, and the other. And when they, you know, the sort of sword and shield and scarlet and violet, when they are just, you know, unadorned Pokemon, classic Pokemon, really, with a few little bells and whistles, but for the most part, you know, same as it ever was, and it's got these big graphics, it's almost like they feel a little bit bare. They feel a little bit somehow shortchanged, which is a weird twist of logic, I hadn't really realised that I thought like that until you just <laughs> until you just said it there, but yeah, it's almost like they hit the sweet spot of mechanics and art presentation on the DS. You know, things like black and white and diamond and pearl, that sort of lovely had a little a little little bit of two point five D, the perspectives on the buildings and stuff. Um, and I think it started to strain a little bit around the time of X and Y. I can, I can, I, you know, those 3DS games are still good. I liked Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire. And, and actually, recently, it was quite nice on the Switch when they did Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl because it was a bit more of a throwback. You know, they had the little sort of chibi characters and it was top down again. I actually much prefer that than I do sort of Sword and Shield. But yes, yeah, back to Cassette Beasts. It's lovely. <laughs> and it does that thing. I know you're a big fan of um, Ujima. What's it? Uh, Octopath. Well, well, and the other one. But the reason I'm mixing them up is that they both do that funny art style. You know, two D HD. You know, where it's like it looks like a an old pixel game. You know, transported into the future, sort of thing. It's a it's a weird one, but it works. Yeah, it looks super striking. I have a real love for kind of intricate diorama-style game environments. That's why I like Octopath and Triangle Strategy and those older Pokemon games, Link's Awakening, that kind of thing. Uh, I really love those, those like looking down into a world. I love that perspective. Um, I'm definitely going to try Cassette Beasts. Interestingly enough, you mentioned like the gameplay, you know, how gameplay is suited to 3D and 2D. A couple of games uh, spring to mind, one being Dragon Quest XI Definitive Edition, uh, Dragon Quest XI-S, I think, which I played and loved um, during the pandemic. A good pandemic game, real meaty 80-hour RPG, which won me over completely. And that's a beautiful game, beautiful 3D game. But also you can play 
a, and you can flip it at any time to a 2D 16-bit style top-down RPG version of the game. Your progress carries over, Your the characters are the same, the battles are the same, the enemies are the same. Um, the environments are the same, but I think the distances between them are compressed. So it's, you know, it's slightly, it's a compressed version of the game, but it's essentially exactly the same thing. Um, and in, in Japan, there was a 3DS version of, the, of Dragon Quest XI, which again was different, more like Pokemon XY, I think, like a kind of midway between the full 3D adventure and that 16-bit style. Um, and remarkably, the gameplay there, and maybe this speaks to Dragon Quest being quite a traditional RPG, the gameplay there wasn't really affected either way. Whether I played in, in the 2D version or the 3D version, I ultimately st stuck with 3D because it was such a, a beautiful game and had such style. But the 2D version was really cool. And it was amazing how consistent it felt. Another game which I haven't played in either version, but I always thought it was quite an interesting experiment, was the pocket edition of Final Fantasy XV. I mean, Final Fantasy XV is a big, sprawling, spectacular AAA RPG. And then the Pocket Edition, which I think came to Switch and Mobile, is a, a chibi-style, much more uh, compressed version of that game, which I think pretty much follows the main storyline, but strips well off the side quests and things. And I'm sure that the combat and everything else are quite different. But I do like this weird... Uh, Little, in these examples, these kind of just ways of telling the same, playing the same games or telling the same story or, or you know, having the same game but presented in these very different uh, different ways. Um, who knows if this is something worthwhile doing? I, I think anyone, if asked, would rather play full fat Final Fantasy and full fat Dragon Quest. But you know, interesting. No, I, I, I really love that. And do you know what? Somehow, I had no idea that that Final Fantasy game existed until you said that just now. And I want to play Final Fantasy XV. And I've, I always, I'd never had much t uh, time for those games until I played the remake of Seven, which, against the odds, I really enjoyed. One look at those games, it totally turns me off. But ever since I sort of enjoyed that, I thought, well, maybe the doors open a little bit on this series. And when you just said that just now, I immediately thought, well, that's the version I want to play. <laughs> um, it's uh, it might be a, it might be a bit daft, but I, I love that idea. Um, that you're that you, that you're talking about, like the um, that sort of sense of like it's the same thing that you already know, but it's like a, it's a it's a it's a different take on a similar thing. The thing that immediately came to mind was Grand Theft Auto Chinatown Wars. Now that's a different game uh, than 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 Grand Theft Auto Four. Uh, you know, different story, different characters. And I played that on the PSP, where it had, like, the upgraded sort of uh, graphics from the DS version. And that was a, a really lovely thing, because it was the same map as GTA 4. So you were exploring the same place, but you were doing it from this, from this sort of isometric perspective. And I've got, I've got such a soft spot for those top-down Grand Theft Auto games. And what was amazing was, the map felt... Uh, 
recognisable but so different from that perspective. <laughs> like, uh, and of course it helped the art style had also changed. But if you think of Grand Theft Auto 4, it's such a particular map and one of my favourite open worlds ever, I think, that version of Liberty City. And to see it, you know, again, effectively, but almost with this overlaid with this sort of comic book brightness... Uh, was was a real tree not quite the same thing that you're talking about but it and the other the other thing that that, that it reminded me of which is uh, a a bit of a deep cut and i'm sure you know a game not not loved by many (laughs) but um kill zone liberation again another psp cracker which took Killzone, you know, if it's sort of fairly grim and gritty first-person shooter from Guerrilla, started life on the PS2, and made it this isometric. Uh, well, it was an isometric shooter, but but just by virtue of the camera angle, completely changed your approach to the tactics of an area. You know, the way the way that you'd fight, the positions that you'd get yourself to, and the tactics that you'd use, being able to see sort of the whole battlefield. And I do love that idea. Often it's a camera change, but often it's also a graphical change. You see the same thing, but you come at it from a different angle with a different light. And it, it is a fascinating idea. I really want that Final Fantasy thing you're talking about. GTA 4's Liberty City map is a masterpiece of design and structure, I think. The way the neighbourhoods kind of blend into each other, the way they tell a story through the the NPCs and the... and and their uh, construction it's it's a remarkable piece and, and just the layout of the roads the, the it's such a fun map to to move around and drive around and, and move through it's um a great piece of work i would love if rockstar went back to to something similar for gta 6 whether it's vice city or liberty city or somewhere else but focus on on a singular location maybe but just make that location more dense um, make it a location that you can really get to know, really get to understand. Um, similar to Yakuza, uh, I think. Uh, I expect not. I expect whatever it will be, and I think it is going to be Vice City. I expect it will sprawl out into into the countryside. But um, yeah, that's our good memories there. Um, I'll also just quickly add here before I wrap up that Tears of the Kingdom is is really uh, is a fascinating case with regards reuse of maps because it obviously reuses Hyrule from Breath of the Wild and I will say I was quite dubious about this I thought it was maybe a cost cutting exercise or you know an exercise in making the game easier to make uh, and maybe to an extent it was but it's so much more than that and that game really shines if you've played Breath of the Wild because revisiting all of these familiar locations but seeing how they've changed seeing how the events of that game and this game have left their mark makes it a, a kind of melancholic place to visit it's you know, there are familiar things things that have changed people that have come and gone it's considering the size of, of the map reusing it i think was quite bold like oh we're doing a new open world game but we're just going to reuse this map you're kind of thinking oh you're just having a laugh here but they've this is nintendo of course so they've really made it work they've really gone to town and made sure that it's it's familiar but new in every corner um and not just including the new sort of above and below environments it's revisiting the land that you knew is is a pleasure at every turn so i don't know if they would do another game in this world that might be pushing it but i'm glad they did it's such a makes such a great companion piece to, to breath of the wild 
I will add that my wife, Sharon, is not so keen. Not because she hates the game or anything, but because she hears me playing it and she wonders what on earth it is I'm up to. I shall leave you with some of the sample NPC chatter and um, you can draw your own conclusions. I'll um, catch you soon. Cheers, mate.